Insecure, a security podcast, brought to you by the Center for Global Security Challenges. See it, say it, secure it. I am Dr. Marine Guéguin, a research fellow for the Center for Global Security Challenges at the University of Leeds. And I am Dr. Harry Swinhoe, a research fellow at the Center for Global Security Challenges at the University of Leeds. And together, we will be discussing security in an increasingly insecure world. This podcast aims at bringing together postgraduate researchers, early career researchers, and established academics to discuss their research and explore the six core themes of the Center for Global Security Challenges, gender security, global reordering, health security, peace and conflict, terrorism and political violence, and environmental security. We launched the podcast and our first season in April 2021 with three episodes that you actually really liked. For the first season, we discussed climate security, terrorism, and the future of terrorism studies. We are back for a second season. The second season will bring episodes on the future of security studies, gender security, and nuclear weapons, civil war, and more. So stay tuned. In the meantime, you can find the first season of Insecure, a security podcast on Spotify, Acast, SoundCloud, and at the Center for Global Security Challenges website where you can also find out more information about the centre and its cutting-edge research. Security for who? The floor is yours. Do you have questions? If you have any questions for our guests, then get in touch using our Twitter handle, at InsecurePod, or hashtag InsecurePodcast, or email us at InsecurePodcast at Outlook.com, and your question may be featured on the show. For this fourth episode, we will be discussing civil wars, and today we would like to welcome James Wall, Alex Waterman, and Maggie Pingili. Welcome, guys. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Dr. James Worrell is an Associate Professor in International Relations and Middle East Studies at the University of Leeds, where he has worked since 2005. His research interests focus on comparative politics, security studies, and international relations, with a particular interest in the Gulf and the Levant. He has conducted research on a wide range of related areas, such as the West's relationship with the Arab world, decolonization, counterinsurgency, and rebel governance. He recently published a book on state building and counterinsurgency in Oman, and has co-written a book on the IRGC commander Qasem Soleimani and his role in Iranian propaganda. Dr. Alex Waterman is a lecturer in Peace Studies and International Development at the University of Bradford. Prior to this, Alex worked as a research fellow at the German Institute for Global and Area Studies in Hamburg and also worked at the University of Leeds. His research agenda investigates how actors from state and non-state armed actors to ceasefire brokers, peace building and civil society actors understand and try to shape the complex moving parts, formal and informal rules and institutions that make up conflict affecting settings. In particular, his research has focused on insurgency and counterinsurgency in northeastern India. Maggie Pengilly is a PhD researcher at the University of Leeds, and her research interests sits between defence and security policies, civil military relations, and EU foreign and security policy. In her PhD, she explores the influence that partnerships between industry and public bodies have on the innovation of institutions, the governance methods, and the performance of defence policy by contracting and processing specialised knowledge. James and Alex, you are the co-editors of Civil War Journals, and Maggie, you are the assistant editor. For our audience, the Civil War Journal encapsulates all aspects of interested conflict, including its causes and nature, 
and the factors which help to explain its onset, duration, intensity, termination, and recurrence. So the journal also offers work on the epistemology of scholarship on interstate conflict and contributes to debates about the politics, sociology, and economics of civil wars and the significance of interstate conflict for international relations. James, Alex, Maggie, we are very pleased to have you here with us today for our second season and the fourth episode. So before delving into the topic of the future of civil wars research and studies, we would like to ask you a question that remains throughout our episodes and that we ask every speaker is, how secure or insecure is the world today in relation to civil war? So what we've seen in terms of civil wars is basically a pretty large explosion in the aftermath of the end of the Cold War, which then began gradually to diminish, reaching a low point around sort of 2003-04. Now, traditionally in the literature, we tend to think of civil war having exploded and kind of remained very high. And I think that's certainly the impression you get from the media. But there was quite a significant drop off and quite a significant improvement in the number of peace accords and things happening from the late 1990s. What we've seen, of course, since around 2005 is another explosion of civil wars. And actually, one of the pieces in our special issue, our 25th anniversary special issue, which is about to come out, actually runs the numbers and comes up with the incredibly depressing fact that there has never been more civil wars in the world than there are today. So I think that kind of answers that question quite comprehensively from a statistical perspective. But of course, from a wider perspective, I think we're somewhat overwhelmed by the range of the horrors that civil wars can produce. And of course, the mass media really amplifies that fact. So in a sense, you've got a bit of a double whammy going on, really. Mm -hmm. I can build on that. So, yeah, thank you very much. It's a great question. It's one that I'm thinking about a lot as I prepare for a semester of teaching about international security and the international order. As scholars, we do have, I just want to echo James, really, we we do have this tendency to say that the latest crisis is unprecedented and that everything came before, you know, wasn't as bad and we're more insecure than ever. But I would actually kind of argue that the world is becoming more insecure from a standpoint of armed conflict, at least compared to the first two decades of the post-Cold War era. Now, let's be clear, the kind of unipolar moment, the heyday of the American-dominated international order, Pax Americana, it wasn't especially peaceful. As James said, there's this massive spike in civil wars in the early 1990s before gradually declining into the early 2000s, before starting to see a gradual increase again into the 2010s. Um, If you look at the Uppsala Conflict Database Programme, The last decade has seen a particular jump in the number of state-based conflicts. And if you check out their website, you'll see that around 2013 to 2016, in particular, the number of ongoing conflicts has overtaken that seen in the 1990s. In terms of the numbers of state and non-state-based conflict fatalities, both of these figures have jumped significantly during the 2010s and, of course, in 2022, with that massive spike coming from the conventional phase of the Ukraine war. I only expect this to get worse, seeing things that are going on right now in the Middle East, for example. Well, definitely, there was a report from the United Nations that six out of seven interviewers were feeling more insecure today. 
than secure. And then there was another op-ed in New York Times about insecurity and how we should interpret insecurity. Well, there are different perspectives. Of course, the world feels more insecure, but if we go back to the roots and causes, we see that insecurity is mostly about feelings. Let me put it in this word, it's mostly about feelings, but and social conditions and social cultures, as long as it is about global development factors, inequality, economics, and so on. And now there are a variety uh, of conflicts going on and the world is increasingly getting insecure, but it's increasingly getting insecure also because of the dynamics and because of the lack of discerning between disinformation, information, and malinformation. That's very interesting to frame it that way, this notion of like feeling insecure. Thanks for sharing your thought on this question of like insecure and if it's a decrease or increase And maybe before we delve into the topic, in particular your research, we want to clarify maybe a few things for our our audience today, and in particular in terms of the terminologies. So what do we understand today by civil war, sub-state conflict, intra- or interstate conflict? So James, if you could maybe guide our audience on those terms. I'll certainly give it a go. So in many senses, the the concepts overlap considerably with each other if they're not actually synonyms. But when we really start to study civil war, you realise that there's many different types of civil wars, many different forms, um, both in the ways in which they're fought. So they could be either fully conventional wars that just happen to take place between two sides inside the same country, which can be highly kind of uh, mechanized and intensive mass killing machines, basically. U.S. Civil War being one of them, of course, English Civil War, Chinese Civil War. These are basically wars that are fought in in conventional fashion much of the time. Of course, war blurs and there's unconventional elements even in regular warfare, but we can certainly see that civil wars can take that particular form. There just happens to be fewer of them, generally speaking. Then, of course, civil wars can take an unconventional form, which is what most of the modern ones do. Very much asymmetric conflict between two or more sides. Uh, And I think it's important to recognise that civil war doesn't have to be between just two sides. It can be between many. Many of the historical literatures would err towards the two sides. But we certainly see that particularly post Second World War, there's very much multi-actor civil wars. Substate conflict basically could be the sense that you could theoretically have just one region of your country that has kind of erupted into civil war. It doesn't have to take over the entire country. But many people use those terms as being exactly the same thing. So people describe civil wars that are only happening in one particular kind of province of a country as being a civil war. It doesn't have to affect the whole territory of of a state. And then, of course, the difference between Intra and interstate is fairly simple. Inter is obviously between states, conventional warfare that's usually declared and ends with peace treaties and all the usual stuff of IR. And then intra just means internal. There is a lot of crossover of these terminologies, though. So I don't think that there's particular value in one above another. But I think civil wars is kind of the the term that's used most frequently. Oh, thank you for that. I think that was really good in kind of setting out the background and basic terminology for our audience. And building on that, I was wondering if you could maybe unpack what the analytical benefit is of separating out civil war as a category of war or violence from some of the other types of conflict 
that we've talked about and that people might think of, especially given that kind of terminological blurring that you've talked about, but also the blurring that we see in practice between things like interstate wars, civil wars, regional conflicts, as for instance in Syria. So, yeah, thinking about the kind of analytical distinction between interstate wars, civil wars, and the kind of blurring of the two, I'd start off by saying that first that civil wars and internationalization have a long history. So the, you know, the Vietnam War, for example, at its core, very much a civil war exacerbated by foreign great power competition. And I'd argue that's the sort of thing that we've seen going on in Syria as well. We've seen a real growth in internationalized civil wars. So civil wars where other states intervene militarily on one or both sides. In 1991, I mean, this is just after the Cold War, but 4% of civil wars were internationalized. By 2015, 40% of civil wars had an internationalized dimension. So I'd say that the real kind of benefit of having this specific subcategory of civil wars, we we do so in mind that we can recognize this interplay between internal and external factors. That's very much integrated into the civil wars literature. It's really not possible to think about civil war as a purely kind of internal phenomenon in this globalized world. At the same time, I do accept that the kind of label civil wars has certain connotations attached to it. Taking this question more broadly, and this is something that myself and James kind of ask at the end of our 25th anniversary special issue, we ask, you know, are there actually analytically useful distinctions between the concepts of, for example, insurgency and terrorism, riots and civil disobedience, political violence and civil war. One of our contributors, Paul Staniland, reflects in the special issue. He says, is political violence a broad umbrella within which all of these kind of subfields sit? And if so, does studying political violence give us opportunities to recognise those distinctions and overlaps? At the same time, if we move towards political violence as our kind of unit of analysis, does that then not create a new problem and abstract and fragment an already rather fragmented set of fields? So, I mean, that's a bit more of a question slash reflection than an answer, but hopefully gives us a basis for further conversation. Yeah, I think it's interesting that one of the things that we did for the anniversary special issue is we asked all the previous editorial teams to reflect on how the field had changed during their editorship and what they did to kind of shape the field. And our founding editor, Professor Caroline Kennedy-Pipe, we asked her to talk a bit about how the journal was founded, obviously founded in 1998, very much in the middle of a lot of things happening in the world and the kind of explosion of, of civil wars, but also the sudden and quite dramatic kind of establishment of a field of study that didn't really exist before. And one of the things that she said was actually quite interesting in her reflection in that she said, you know, maybe if I was looking back now, one of the things I might have done differently would be to call the journal something different. Maybe I would have called it proxy wars rather than civil wars, which is quite an interesting reflection, but doesn't necessarily, of course, fully reflect the reality. And we're very glad that she didn't call it proxy wars because we think the civil wars label does offer rather a lot more in terms of the pure complexities of what is happening these are essentially local conflicts then they can't be reduced to simple proxy terms they're very complicated social economic and political events and i think in some senses staniland is correct in in saying that yes in in a sense this is all political violence but at the same time i think both terms do reify violence too much 
I think there's a kind of a natural human tendency to be a bit obsessed with violence. But maybe as academics, we should be a bit less obsessed with violence and much more interested in in conflict and social processes surrounding conflict before they get to violence. And I think civil wars actually helps us more fully to engage with that part of things, which is far more important, I think, than purely focusing on why violence happens and what the effects of violence are, because it's much more sophisticated and, and actually more interesting than that in many senses, even though the natural human tendency is to be kind of glued to violence and uh, watch it quite morbidly which is um, not great I think there's kind of two elements are really interesting and worth pulling out from what you said so first off that civil war makes you think about war or conflict as something broader than just violence and then secondly that it forces the focus onto the local dynamics behind conflict and avoiding that tendency to understand these conflicts solely as kind of reflections of kind of great power politics or great power conflict. I think that's really important. Before we move on, I was just wondering, Maggie, do you want to add anything to this? Say as a PhD student, what attracted you to using the term civil war or civil war as a kind of focus of analysis? As a focus of analysis, a focus of research. What pushed me, I mean, it's a very interesting question. What pushed me to be engaged is that, well, I was invited by James and Alex and in this enterprise, and I really thank them because they understood that I would get very bored to work all the time on public-private partnership, industry, civil-military relation, innovation. I needed an excitement. So it is a very interesting field, something I, I am exploring gladly, and something that is also enriching my knowledge and inspired me then to work in a project last year for BISA conference on cyber civil wars, merely cyber civil wars. So yeah, this is pretty much what pushed me on, the curiosity to explore more and to deepen knowledge. And we'll definitely get on to talk about that research during the podcast, because I think it's really interesting. But to move further into the discussion and to flesh this out we would like to discuss the concept of civil wars in a bit more depth looking both at some specific cases and then thinking about how this concept fits into international relations more broadly so actually alex reflecting on your research and your research agenda which investigates how actors from states and non-state actors to ceasefire brokers, peace building and civil society actors understand and try to shape the complex moving part, formal, informal rules and institutions that make up conflict affecting settings, as Harry was highlighting. And we wondered if you could clarify this for our audience with the case study you investigate. Thank you. Yeah, great question. So I guess this takes me back to what got me interested in civil wars research, my PhD. So I was interested in, in my undergraduate and master's, I was interested in insurgencies, counterinsurgencies, war on terror. This was all kind of going on at the time. And through one way or another, I kind of stumbled across, probably I think from James, actually, I stumbled across looking at India as a case study of conflict. And that took me to this this region at the far northeastern corner of India, which is very much kind of isolated from the rest of the country. It's, I think it's connected by like a 20 kilometer corridor known as the Chicken's Neck. And within this region, there's this, it's quite peripheral to India politically, strategically. And there was this real kind of patchwork of different types of conflict 
cooperation, collusion between states and insurgents. So in some cases, there were these really aggressive Indian military operations to really kind of crush insurgent groups. In other cases, there were quite kind of cautious live and let live arrangements that had emerged and were quite durable. So, you know, they'd often be still armed, still very much facing each other off, but would be in this kind of tacit containment type relationship. And then in other cases, political parties were sponsoring and leading to the emergence of insurgencies. So all these different kind of relationships. So I was thinking how to make sense of this picture. What kind of tools can we draw upon for that? And that really brings us to this kind of idea of order and ordering processes, which me and James published an article in 2020 about titled Spinning Multiple Plates Under Fire. So our our research then, it, it forms part of this order turn in civil wars research as a field with we've increasingly moved away from thinking about civil wars as forms of collapse or breakdown towards thinking about to kind of touch on james's point for a moment ago civil wars as kind of social processes where institutions are reconfigured you know you don't just see the disappearance of every form of order markets re-emerge in conflict settings rebels come in and try to govern local populations these kind of arrangements are shaped and emerge. So this is the idea of order. It's the idea of kind of predictable, patterned, relational behaviours underpinned by these formal or informal rules. So in my research, an article that I published in International Peacekeeping a couple of years ago, I looked at how an order of ceasefire emerged between the Indian state and one of the largest rebel groups in a place called Nagaland in far northeastern India. So you have the kind of formal rules of the ceasefire that are are struck in the negotiation process, but then you also have these informal rules which are being negotiated on the ground as well. So while the peace talks are going on in these, you know, these foreign capitals, they're they're chalking out the formal rules of how the state and insurgents are going to relate to one another. You also have on the ground attempts to shape the ground realities and in doing so shape the kind of informal rules. So there were kind of offensives on the ground to try and shape patterns of control. For example, when the ceasefire was brought into effect, immediately the state and armed groups started kind of jostling over the informal rules. So there was a formal rule to ban collecting taxes from the civilian population, from the rebel group. But they did that from day one. So automatically they were trying to rewrite the kind of rules of ceasefire and that ended up being kind of pretty much accepted by the Indian state despite those formal rules being in place so it's about that kind of jostling um, between the formal and informal rules institutions patterns of governance so it's very much thinking about the social relations and processes around violence just to again go back to James's point. Great actually I wanted to comment on this notion of ceasefire and ask you a little bit more on the concept of ceasefire and how they emerge and whether this holds hope out for the conflicts which you studied in terms of North India, but also if you could maybe reflect on this notion of ceasefire with Myanmar or Syria or even Sudan in the current context. Super, yeah. So there's a there's a really nice emerging literature on ceasefires. Surprisingly, it wasn't there wasn't a hugely developed literature on ceasefires until the last five or so years when it's really started to take off. And 
increasingly we're recognizing that ceasefires are not just these kind of normatively good things there are processes that can go that can underlie them so Marika Sosnovsky, for example, does a really nice work on ceasefires in Syria and how ceasefires have been used as kind of opportunities for new forms of order to be created, whether that's rebels consolidating rebel governance structures, whether that's the Syrian state increasingly encroaching into and using ceasefires as kind of strangle contracts. So it's it's been interesting to see how the literature is increasingly recognising that there is this diverse array of ceasefires from your real kind of humanitarian pause type moments to these longer drawn out ceasefires that you see in Myanmar, Northeast India. And, you know, they have very different implications for, for the kind of order that emerges as well. It's a novel field. It's emerging. There's not a real kind of consensus in terms of key lessons. It depends on the ceasefire, the kind of ceasefire that you're talking about. But yeah, I like this kind of turn towards recognizing ceasefires beyond the kind of basic normative claim that a ceasefire is good. You know, of course it is. It it has a clear potential to alleviate suffering. But when you think about how these kind of order-making projects can come into things, then, you know, we also need to reflect on that as well. Thank you for that. That's very interesting and relevant, this notion of ceasefire, in particular in the current context. Yeah, Marika also has a really nice article in Civil Wars from 2018 looking at violence and order processes in Syria, if you want to check that out. Oh, nice. That's good. Thanks. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for that. And it's interesting thinking, I guess, around what you're saying of the way in which ceasefires can almost be used as a kind of offensive tool or as a part of the conflict as well as a way of kind of bringing conflict to an end. So now moving from that kind of conversation about how conflict might be caused or how it might be ended to think about why conflicts might emerge. My understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, because this isn't necessarily my area, but is that there's historically been this dispute within the civil wars literature about how civil wars emerge as to whether this can primarily be explained in terms of existing or deeply felt grievances or whether it should primarily be explained in terms of a decline in state governance or control. And I was wondering if three of you had any particular take on that debate, and if so, how that might relate to some of the civil wars that we've seen in recent years, You know, the examples that Maureen just gave around Myanmar, Libya, Sudan, Syria, and so on. Yeah, it's an important and perennial question that is very difficult to escape from. So... What's known as the greed versus grievance debate kind of began in the late 1990s as uh, the field was trying to establish itself and people were trying to find any explanation pretty much to explain what the hell was happening. Why were there so many of these civil wars everywhere all at once? And so people were looking around and the, the early explanations, as you'd expect, are, are pretty poor. But from the late 1990s, there's a real attempt to study things systematically and to really try to be a bit more kind of scientific uh, about working out why civil wars happen. And of course, a lot of that early stuff is based on on quants data and is highly problematic in a number of ways. But those debates ultimately really fundamentally shaped the first sort of decade of the field of study in quite pervasive ways that we've not fully escaped from. 
it's only really from around sort of 2006 onwards that you get this much more micro turn rather than trying to find patterns across the globe to actually really understand the real micro dynamics of these conflicts, which in turn has opened up a kind of a whole new subfield, which has become the dominant field in civil war studies, really trying to understand local dynamics, which are much more about politics rather than necessarily kind of big scale grievances or this kind of idea of greed of everything being driven by the availability of diamonds or oil or whatever. So I think it's in, there's been some big strides forward, but I think in some senses the micro turn has become a little bit too micro and we, we need to zoom out a little bit more and, and rethink broader patterns of conflict. There's a lot of articles out there which talk about the idea of beyond greed grievance. Uh, in fact, one of them actually adds a not too soon to the title, which gives you some idea of, of how frustrated a lot of people were with that particular debate and its circularity. But I think that debate is never going to fully go away, both because it's comprehensible, but also because there's no easy answers both epistemologically and methodologically, it's difficult to get people to to necessarily admit to being greedy, for example, when there's a nice political ideology they can tap into the human nature, I suppose. But at the same time, we certainly see that we're moving into a, a field of study now, which is really much more about politics. And that is not necessarily about broad brush grievances. It's also about the more micro dynamics of how humans order themselves and, and arrange their societies. I think that's a good comprehensive overview of how that debate's evolved over time. Alex, I don't know if there's anything that you wanted to add to there. Not a great deal to add, just that I kind of entered the field almost during that the midst of that micro turn. The big books for me at the time when I was doing my master's, for example, was Morton Boas and Kevin Dunn's African Gorillas raging against the machine which was really good at kind of bringing in those kind of historical micro sociological processes stathis calivas his classic book on order and violence was a really big one for me at that time so i've been very much in the kind of micro level world and i think the good thing about this special issue the 25th anniversary one is that it's really forcing me um, you know through reading some of the contributions to think about this kind of bigger picture so i've i've really enjoyed that process from a kind of learning developmental perspective yeah and it, that is one of the good things about this kind of work is that you get into those positions where you're forced to read things that you wouldn't have read otherwise um, and it kind of makes you think i was gonna move on to think about so was in international relations, but I just wanted before that to pick up on one of the things that you talked about earlier, which was this trend towards internationalization in civil wars. And I was just wondering if any of you had any thoughts about why that trend has taken place. So we've gone from, I think you said it was 4% to 40% in terms of the internationalization, whether there's been any convincing explanations for that in the literature, or if we're still too much in the middle of that trend to really understand it i guess a very quick thought would be the four to forty percent the four percent is in it's at the very end of the cold war it's the very beginning of that kind of unipolar moment and then the forty percent is when you see in the real kind of lurch back to great power competition and multiple so you might you know you might be able to make some reflections about that being linked to a changing international system the fact that conflicts like Syria, for example, very much kind of 
competition between various both regional and international powers that would be my kind of reflection a changing kind of world order but however that's not really something that I've been researching specifically James might have more to add on that yeah I think clearly there's major shifts going on away from the unipolar moment we're certainly in some kind of a transition phase but it's too easy i think to just pin this on great power conflict uh, i think there's a lot of much more interesting stuff going on at the regional level so i think one of the key things to bear in mind about civil wars is that they're not only started internally but they can be fueled from external powers seeking to destabilize things but equally, of course, they represent opportunities for neighbouring countries to to reshape power relations and to access uh, different types of resources. And of course, that is in, in many ways shaped by the insecurity of neighbouring states who fear f- spillover effects, not necessarily just the traditional ones in terms of migration and uh, crime and things, but also political spillover effects and the ways in which that can destabilise regimes. Uh, And I think it's the insecurity of regimes rather than, of course, democratic states that often drives intervention into civil wars, usually in quite subtle ways, but sometimes in some pretty significant, um, very visible kind of forms as well. So I think civil wars always represent opportunities for lots of different actors, both to cement forms of security, but also to take advantage in ways which can prop up regimes. So if you think back to the collapse of the Democratic Republic of Congo in about 1998, what happens there, of course, is that nine of the neighbouring countries basically invade Congo and try and seize bits of territory and support different rebel groups. And they do so to to access minerals. Um, So Mugabe's uh, Zimbabwe, for example, uh, becomes a major player in the Congo, mainly to access these resources, which are then pumped back into Zimbabwe to earn hard currency in order to prop up the regime and stop the Mugabe regime falling. And we see this today in the ways in which there's been crossover kind of effects from what is now a civil war in Sudan, let alone the problems in South Sudan, into places like Chad, for example. These are are pretty common dynamics that are often kind of rather neglected when people look purely at what the US and Soviets are doing, or nowadays what the US and China and Russia are doing. So I think it's much more important to look at some of these localised dynamics of internationalisation, which are are not necessarily connected to great powers at all. So thinking about internationalisation, people might misinterpret that or misunderstand kind of the scope of that, uh, and actually perhaps should be thinking in terms of kind of regionalisation as maybe a a mid-level between that um all right great thank you both in terms of civil wars and international relations as a discipline so both marine and i are now teaching general ir courses and i'm currently teaching two modules on international relations and international relations theory this term and one question that comes up especially when you're talking about things like realism or liberalism is how these theories that are more state-centric can account for phenomena like civil wars and how we can incorporate an understanding of civil wars and their importance into our understanding of international relations. And so I was just wondering if you had any reflections on both how we can go about doing that, but also the benefits that that brings to kind of the discipline of international relations more broadly from incorporating and thinking about civil wars. Yeah, I guess um, I'd just kind of open by saying that it absolutely does enrich our understanding of international relations, bringing civil wars in. And I do, I think that, I mean, I'm a bit biased, I guess, but I think every 
university's introduction to IR course should have a week on the global challenge of civil wars and interstate conflict. Ultimately, at the most basic level, they tell us that states aren't these billiard ball style actors with their interests determined in the centre, that, you know, that these far more complex constructs that we need to break down. Uh, we need to break down the the very nature of the state a lot of time. So thinking, for example, the country that I studied in my PhD, India, you simply cannot understand how New Delhi interacts with international and multilateral institutions without understanding the internal conflicts it's faced since independence. Uh, otherwise, we have no idea why New Delhi has these preferences for this privileging of sovereignty, of non-interference, of particular interactions with regional players. Like, we cannot understand that. They're deeply kind of interlinked. And I think that civil wars quite often get boxed off as an internal phenomenon, maybe even get, you know, they'll get their own module kind of later on. But I, do, I think they need to be at the heart of IR teaching. They're deeply linked to in, international politics, the world order. That would be my response to kick us off. Yeah, Mohammed Ayoub has a, a great book, I think published in 1995, which is called The Third World Security Predicament. If anyone hasn't read it, I would make it a priority to do so, because in that book, he really explains how security works in third world states. But he also ties it into IR theory quite nicely. Um, so it's not just about the domestic security. It's very much about regional and, and, and global security and how it ties up into uh, great power politics as well. I mean, in many senses, civil war studies has not really used much IR theory. There have been several attempts to, to bring it in by different people trying to explain using forms of realism in particular why civil wars start. But those are never, from my perspective, entirely convincing. And I think in many ways it shows us the real limitations of IR theory and what it can and, and, and just cannot do at all well. But also, I think there's a broader context where we can start to see, as Alex says, that studying civil wars really illuminates how global IR really works. These complex interactions between different states that neighbour each other and are more distant uh, as they seek to kind of jockey for position in, in different ways. So civil war tells us in many senses that interstate war is actually quite a rare phenomenon and that in itself is quite useful to decenter the phenomenon of war as being only between states or mainly between states when actually most wars are fought internally in an interstate fashion often of course influenced by external dynamics in multiple ways but yeah ir theory i don't think enriches the study of civil war that much it hasn't been used a huge amount i think ideas from foreign policy analysis have been used more obviously a sub-discipline of ir itself particularly around dynamics of escalation and de-escalation in civil wars so isabel de vestein has done some really interesting work on this in which actually she uses these dynamics these theories from kind of strategic studies and foreign policy analysis and applies them to a civil war context and then kind of goes back and refines those theories and makes them actually much more useful for an IR audience. So you can clearly see how civil wars does kind of enrich our broader study in some quite interesting and unexpected ways. Yeah, I think the Mohamed Ayoub work is his work around subaltern realism and those kind of ideas. I was talking to my students about that uh, a few weeks ago. So uh, good to see that linking. Maggie, just before we move on to the next question, have you got any thoughts about, I guess, how your 
engagement with civil wars has impacted or influenced your thinking about international relations more broadly? Well, it is very interesting what I have been discovering recently and kind of detaching from our archive, discovering from our archives with different topics at civil wars. I agree with James from my humble point of view, always, that civil wars doesn't have much of IR, but IR can have much of civil wars. As far as in my understanding, civil wars is a subfield, they call it, but I'll see it as a field mostly, that communicates with different fields. Each of them, uh, we consider them factors, environment, education, knowledge, religion, but they are not only dynamics, they are also fields of research and fields that communicate with political dynamics that relate to the sense of being secure and insecure. So if you go through Civil Wars publications from 1998 until 2023, so in the last 25 years, Civil Wars has been communicating with environmental policy, with education policy and education dynamics. Civil Wars has been communicating with technology theories and information theories. So it's a field that, in my understanding, needs to be incorporated in the modules, in the uh, syllabuses of undergrad students especially, because they need to know the specific, the niche ideas, the niche dynamics that it's impossible uh, to see from a big picture, but you can find in a very closed uh, dynamics and in narrow focus, like civil conflicts. As you say, I think it's really important to think about all of those different disciplinary overlaps and maybe the benefit of civil wars having a certain amount of autonomy from international relations is that it is able to make those linkages perhaps more explicit that's very interesting because it makes me reflect even like from our discussion on how i approach ir as well and how i should incorporate way more civil wars this notion of proxy wars as well in my teaching which we probably don't at the moment the last question that I wanted to ask before I pass back to Maureen, and we've touched on this a little bit already, but what might the re-emergence of this kind of focus on great power conflict in the disciplinary side, so within kind of international relations and foreign policy analysis, mean for the study of civil wars? So in terrorism studies, there's been sort of a slight feeling of crisis about is terrorism studies still relevant in an era of great power conflict? And I was wondering if there was anything similar in civil wars or if you felt that actually in this era civil wars is more relevant as a kind of field of study than ever again just to kick us off so i think we touched on it earlier civil wars are not going away they remain the dominant form of war i'm actually working on a special issue at the moment which is it's focusing specifically on counterinsurgency i mean it's not explicitly civil wars but it's kind of a closely allied field and we, you know, we were having a similar kind of conversation with this kind of shift towards great power competition. What does this mean for this discipline? And we ultimately thought that it's an important kind of inflection point, the end of the so-called war on terror. But, you know, that these things are not going to go away. Insurgencies, irregular warfare, terrorism, interstate conflicts. So while we may not see kind of massive degrees of 
Western intervention, as we saw in the war on terror, or perhaps kind of large scale kind of humanitarian interventions um, as we shift to a different kind of world order. These things are not going to go away. We're still going to need to understand them. And um, yeah, that's my kind of that's my thought on that. And I think policymakers need to be a bit careful not to discard some of these lessons that have been, you know, painfully learned over the last 20 years or so. And I think there needs to be a bit of care taken with that. And I think that the disciplines of terrorism, of insurgency, of civil wars need to um, continue with that and not get distracted by the kind of that kind of fadism of shifting to the new kind of craze, because this will remain the dominant form of war. Yeah, it's a great question. It's a really important question. We see these patterns of things falling into and out of fashion. Everyone jumps on a bandwagon because it gets you publications, it gets you promotion, it gets you grants. It's a major problem with the way in which our kind of broad discipline is is set up anyway. These issues are, are certainly not going to go away. It's very clear. And particularly given that all of the the main states that are players at the top level are uh, armed with nuclear weapons, the only way in which they can really release those tensions is through effectively proxy wars and, and explosions and civil wars. Otherwise, we end up in nuclear Armageddon pretty quickly. So in that sense, we're going backwards to the Cold War more than going forwards into something that's truly new. But also at the same time, we don't really know what things are going to play out to be. A lot of people are making assumptions about uh, a shift to a multipolar order, but there's not really any clarity on what that looks like. So we know that the Chinese economy is pretty weak. We know that there's major structural vulnerabilities in China, which might well mean that it's simply not able to to achieve the things that it wants to politically. We've already seen that in Russia. I mean, to a certain degree, what more problems can Russia cause when they're that bogged down in Ukraine and will be for a long time? They're certainly not the great power that everyone assumed that they were. The more interesting question is, what about all these more mid-level powers? You know, your Turkeys, Brazils, Indonesias, what's India going to do? These are far more interesting questions, I think, because that's going to shape the the actual nature of the multipolar order. And particularly over Ukraine, what we've seen very clearly is that there is almost like a, a set of what's, what's known in, in the small states literature as swing states that kind of move between one side or another, uh, depending on the particular issue and how it benefits them. And that, in a sense, is also going to be highly related to domestic politics. So Turkey's behaviour is very closely aligned with the nature of the regime. It's aligned with Erdogan. Previous Turkish governments would not be behaving in this manner at all. So it goes back to this internal political dimension. And we also know that Turkey is shaped, for example, by its conflict with the Kurds, what is in effect a civil war, which has been ongoing for many, many decades. So again, you can see how civil war itself is going to shape the nature of multiple orders, I think. Thanks. That's very interesting. My next question is reflecting also on this whole conversation about internationalized versus localized and this notion of like involvement of external actors or um, so-called great powers and the issue not going away as you said Alex in terms of like terrorism counterinsurgency and armed conflict and I wanted to bring also this uh, current context of uh, coups as well in in our discussion and in particular African coups that we have seen recently the outbreak as well of those 
coup d'état. Um, and I wondered also if you can tell us a bit more about it and what is your view or input. I was looking at a special issue, which was released, I think, in 2020. And they were talking about the need to move beyond this notion of coup and more an understanding of civil-military relations, in particular when we look at the African context, and to move beyond this idiom of or the concept of coup, but rather talk about an ongoing and variation between regimes, armies, and civilian population. So I wondered what you thought about this or if you had any view on this. In many senses, a lot of people thought we were past the era of coups, but also I think we're we're starting to realize as, as the special issue from a few years ago really kind of began to point out that actually this is deeply related to domestic politics, but also to a degree to, to international politics. So the ways in which French influence is diminishing across that particular part of Africa, I mean, there's clearly no accident that this kind of thing is happening as France is gradually losing its its influence, partly because its own interventions have simply not succeeded. And and so in that sense, a lot of people start to to ask some big picture questions about, well, if the French can't beat these jihadists with all the resources that they have, then what's the point in having them there? That in itself, that failure of French strategy is important. But I think also we see that there's a lot of things happened, particularly in the past few years around the global economy and COVID and a range of other dynamics, which have really kind of exposed some of the limitations of transitions to democracy and the ability to, for newly or relatively newly democratic states to actually deliver, which leads to a degree of impatience, which then leads to the ability to rally people around various different causes. And the spread of popularism is, is certainly not just a Western phenomenon, it's a global phenomenon. Uh, and so in that way, we see, I think, that it's these local dynamics that can drive coups. And we see that the coup in, in Mali and, uh, and in um, Burkina Faso are actually really popular with the public. But also the wider lessons of coups is that militaries are pretty crap at governing and will make some significant mistakes with the economy and will make things worse, as we've seen in Egypt in recent years. And so they're not going to fix anything. They're a kind of popularist feel-good kind of measure, which is a knee-jerk reaction in many senses to previous failures, but also to, to lack of hope. People thinking that military strongmen are going to deliver, they're not exactly known for being good economists usually. And so these problems are simply going to get worse. So there's almost a mimetic kind of nature to this where, like domino effects happen to a degree where people copy each other uh, and think that that's the solution. And I think it's a kind of a common human thing that we we tend to copy each other, don't we, far too much rather than thinking for ourselves. Thank you, James, for that. Thanks. I think it's interesting because in some ways it links back to the conversation about internationalization and regionalization, yeah. kind of West African context where you see a kind of divide between all the coup states and then the eco-west states uh, that might have implications for civil conflict again i think it points to the the importance of those regional dynamics i think so while i'm no expert on the coup literature nor on the specific context i always think you talked about kind of going beyond the notion of coup and kind of drilling into the understanding of civil military relations i've always liked unpacking state-society relations and thinking about the work of Joel McDowell, for example, as a tool to kind of open up the black box of the state 
highlight the linkages between the state and social forces and see the state as this kind of of semi-autonomous structure that's also a site of competition between social forces and and how that impacts civil military relations. So in my PhD and now book project, I did this to try and understand the kind of civil military relations and coordination in counterinsurgency in India. India, of course, isn't a weak or a fragile state by no means. It's probably more of a middling capacity state. But I kind of use that as a tool to think about the differences in how different arms of the Indian state think about localised conflicts and how you saw kind of tensions between the arms of government, for example, local state governments that are drawing their legitimacy from local elections in a conflict setting compared to how New Delhi is seeing some of these challenges often coming across purposes with one another. So it was quite a useful theoretical tool for me to think about civil military relations, but that's all I kind of have on that. Great, thank you. Then we wanted to turn to talk about your specific research that you've got going on at the moment in your current interests, and in particular, obviously, this 25th anniversary edition of the Civil Wars Journal, which you've got coming out soon. And maybe I can start with Maggie, because um, you recently presented on the role of cyber and the digital space in civil war. And in one of our podcast episodes and previous podcasts, we spoke with Jethro Norman about the propaganda war being waged online in relation to events in northern uh, Somalia. And so we were interested in hearing your take on the role of digital technology in civil wars and what you think about this. Well, thank you, Maureen. The question is fascinating because it seems to include three different topics to discuss. The first is, yes, the cyber civil wars. I presented the Syrian visa for the cyber civil wars. And my idea was to put another stone in the literature of the civil war, reflecting on what cyber civil wars looks like, what the lines are they being fought along, and where do they start and where do they end, and who is responsible to provide damages to victims. So this is one part of, of your question. The second is the propaganda war being waged online, and this involves a dynamic between information at war. And as I mentioned in the uh, very beginning of the podcast, when we talk about information and war, there are not only digital tools in information war being used, there are also dynamics. And as I said, there are three dynamics to discern disinformation, malinformation, information. And the third part of your question is the role on digital technology and civil wars. So due to the limitation of time, uh, you'll allow me to focus on the last part, and then I'll try to touch a little bit slightly on all of them. Well, it seems that Barbara Walter, in her paper, New New Civil Wars, she talks about three waves of civil wars. And the third wave corresponds to the information age. Or the internet age. We information age, we entered more previously on that. It was after the 70s. But we entered the internet age in around 2000. So in a time when the web 2.0 really started to dominate the political field. In 1998, it's very interesting, there were only 12 terrorist-related websites. 
And we are in 2023, so you can imagine that that number has been increased with 20 fold times. And it is dominated, the era now they gives power to individuals to always the mass propaganda tools in their hands. So if once upon a time, the mass propaganda tools like TV, radio, there were books printed, uh, materials that were in the hands of the states, of governments, now they are in the hands of the individuals. And with the information, when the, the role of technology has now really enacted the different dynamics, the rebel group seems to exploit every nanny and crook of every digital tool to really fight in this new environment and pursue their political and strategic objectives. So when it comes to the role of the digital technology in civil wars, I would see it grouped in two perspectives directly linking to their implications. The first is operational and the second is normative. Operational because it makes easier for rebel groups the digital technology and the use of information online to acquire support not only with resources, but also to solicit a new war. Then the digital technology allows the spread of information and allows even the increased internationalization of conflicts because it doesn't recognize any boundary. So from local groups, we have global networks with connections. The audience is larger. Then there is also an impact on the posture of post-conflict or operation. So once having achieved the goal, parties in the conflict, they have three choices, either to fully retire, partially retire, or to take on a new cause. And when it comes to force building, most of there is a very nice book of Van Haster on cyber guerrilla. And she talks about hacker groups and how they are formed, what kind of education path they follow, in what kind of dynamics, constraints are they uh, involved in, and what kind of environment they exploit for their cause. So for the cyber force and for the hacker force is another dilemma is to develop the capacity of using digital weapons along with conventional weapons. With the invasion of Ukraine, we enter two normative, let's say, a role of the digital technology in civil wars. The first one is about the limits of international humanitarian law. So when we enter, who has the access to information to filter the open source information for justice and accountability when that will be needed? And second is the frame of mediators. We talk about peacekeeping also in every kind of conflict. We talk about mediators in any kind of conflict, but this includes understanding how technologies are used in conflict situations and what kind of framework they can offer for agreements. Thank you for that, Megi. It's very interesting in particular when we look at who has access to this information and the use of social media, the use of pop culture as well to well, to infuse in our everyday and our conversation as expert or non-expert, actually, on conflict, like how the information is used and it's spread. And there are two other books that come to my mind. One of them is Information at War from Christopher White. And the other is Mindset War from John Moreno. Okay. 
Okay. Now, Minds and War incorporates information technology and neuroscience perspective. How in the info ops, in the execution of info ops, that is super interesting. But another dilemma, Marine, when it comes to my mind on the role of technology, is what about artificial intelligence? Will that change yeah. the character of the war and how? And here there are two other problems to address. The alignment between artificial intelligence or machine learning and the human decision maker. They must, I mean, what is the alignment problem? And the second is the relationship between information and military power. Mm-hmm. That are two other things to consider for the future in the role of digital technologies, machine learning, and all this parallel field to the human mind. (laughs) In civil wars and beyond civil wars, I think. And all of this is still part of wider ordering processes as well, so Mm it makes it even more complicated. Yeah. I was actually just going to ask another question. Um, Jamal, the kind of conversation that we were just having, because it reminded me of when I was at ISA with you guys last year, one of the talks I went to is by a man called Yannick Velo-Page on the role of 3D printing of guns in Myanmar and how that digital technology has been used to basically enable the mass production of fairly mediocre arms. But um, it was making me think about what you said, Maggie, about this interaction between, I guess, the tactical or operational benefits and then the normative aspects, because one of the things you talked about was that there'd been a kind of feed-through of there's a tactical benefit to this, but it also links this conflict into a broader ideological discussion about 3D printing as a kind of anti-state or force for democratization, which had been quite interesting. And then in terms of that also made me have some thoughts about generative AI and its role for, in my case, thinking about what I do, terrorist groups as perhaps a way of mass producing sort of mediocre propaganda and that essentially everyone can, uh, if they can get around the AI's you know, various kind of prescriptions or terms and conditions, use those kind of things to, in a matter of minutes, produce propaganda that isn't necessarily great, but is quick and, you know, reasonable. But yeah, that was just my thoughts on that kind of particular conversation. Alex, and I think you you already kind of mentioned it in terms of the notion of ordering process, but maybe we can develop a little bit further. You published an article with James in 2020 for the Journal of uh, Civil Wars, and this importance of ordering process in civil wars. And I wondered if you could even explain to the audience what does that mean and what does that entail? Sure. I'll come in from where I left off with that and then James can fill in the gaps. So, yeah, like I said, we kind of see our research agenda as part of this wider order turn in civil wars research. And in this article... It's quite a nice article, really, because it really encapsulates a lot of what what I've been trying to do during my PhD, James's own work on this agenda, and then our collaborative work um, together as well. So there's four areas that we identify in this article that have so far benefited from using tools that explore order in conflict settings. So the first is the subfield of rebel governance in civil wars, which talks about how rebels try to not necessarily create new forms of order, but certainly layer certain forms of order onto pre-existing societal structures. And both myself and James have published separately on those issues. The second is internal rebel politics. So 
opening up the kind of web of power relationships within an armed group, locating it within the wider kind of social order upon which armed groups depend, thinking about the connections between those two kind of levels of analysis of order. The third is a cluster of works that I really see myself emerging from, and that's work looking at the varying forms of state armed group relations from this spectrum from all-out war through to containment, cooperation, and that very much emanates from Paul Staniland's work on that. And then the fourth strand focuses on how order works in a given kind of spatial arena. So Alice Hills has did an excellent book called Policing Post-Conflict Cities, and that was thinking about how does order function in cities as conflict begins? How does order change during those settings? But then she also says, well, actually, while there's a lot of destruction, there's a lot of change, there's, there's, there's dramatic new influx of power relations in a conflict setting. But when order re-emerges in a post-conflict, you often see continuities from both the pre-conflict era and the conflict era. But so this strand of work is looking at order in a spatial kind of arena as well. So those four areas are the areas which we kind of highlight in the article. And we go through each of those four and we distill three main benefits of the order research agenda, both in terms of what's been achieved so far and then kind of highlight its future potential. So it's a bit of a kind of agenda reflection and looking ahead kind of piece. So we firstly argue that using order has helped us to capture and measure the wide array of different political relationships in armed conflict. Increasingly, the order turn is helping us to understand how actors actually try to shape and reshape these relationships as well, whether that's rebels, whether it's states. James has got a a great article in Small Wars and Insurgencies looking at how Hezbollah does this, how it tries to negotiate with various ordering actors and structures I've done this from a counterinsurgency perspective. How does the use of force relate to shaping order in insurgency settings? I've also done it from a ceasefire perspective as well. So we kind of reflect on that as well. The third and perhaps least explored theme that we think is a potential benefit at this stage, because we don't think it's really been explored enough so far, is the idea of how actors understand order. So how do actors actually understand the dynamics of the settings that they are trying to influence? So that's really the kind of looking ahead aspect of the article. So it's really about outlining these three benefits across these four areas of thematic areas that have borne out so far. And it's trying to lay out an agenda looking ahead. James, do you want to do you want to add to that? I can do. So I've really been looking at order for about 15 years now, and it's become kind of an obsession because I think it's such an incredibly useful tool but I also think it's genuinely fascinating so for me order is really useful because it can act as a kind of a conceptual framework which goes above and beyond other conceptual frameworks but can also bring um, other conceptual frameworks together so things like narratives and relationality can fit within an order framework quite nicely. So it enables you to kind of draw in different tools and ideas and still have an, an overarching frame. But I think order also is is clearly multi-scalar. And that is its one of its real strengths as well, in the sense that we can talk about world order. We can talk about great power politics and, and the shaping of, of what world order looks like. But we can also talk about the micro dynamics in one particular village of what power politics and and social orders look like in those particular places. And because also it draws in 
ideas of political order and social order and economic order, you can look at whole societies effectively and you can look at this process of kind of negotiation and you can look at this process of both um, intentionality but also unintended consequences. So for us, order is constantly kind of being negotiated and it's being negotiated by different actors in different kind of fields. So if you take Bourdieu's idea of, of fields, you can see how those overlapping fields in, in effect shape orders at a societal level, but also shape these kind of micro dynamics of order. So it's not purely just about powerful actors. Uh, it's not just purely about the guys with guns. It's not purely about the politicians. This order is negotiated by everyone on a day-to-day -day basis. And so the way you queue to pay in a pub matters. And the ways in which you either conform to or challenge the order of how you pay at a bar matters. Because gradually over time, it can actually change how society functions. And agents can do that in a really kind of purposeful way, or they can do it in a almost like an unconscious way, like the power of crowds. And one of the big things we identify in the article is is actually while there is some work that kind of looks at civilians in conflict and that is a is a growing and really very very important subfield there isn't yet the kinds of work that really kind of explores from a purely kind of sociological perspective how civilians not just kind of resist violence in that sense, which is what the, the literature, again, this dominance of violence in the literature is really kind of problematic at times. It's generative, but it, it can be problematic. I think it's much more important to really think about how these kind of collective groups of actors through their own kind of almost unconscious forms of decision making and interaction can shape battlefields, can shape societies in ways in which those people with guns cannot really truly resist. They ha almost have to go along with those things. So if we look at, say, the French Revolution's kind of attempt to impose a new calendar, for example, and completely change the way in which we divide up the year, and we think about the amount of violence put behind that action, and yet 200 years later, we're using the exact same calendar we were before the French Revolution. So that, that attempt to impose something by pure violence simply did not work because people were just like, I'm sorry, but Brumiere, really? I don't think that's going to work. So we can I, we can see lots of historical examples, but I think there is there's major opportunities for really using order as a tool in multiple different ways to make us both reconceptualize, but also rethink our own uh, epistemological stances and our own, the utility of our own methodological tools. And, and it also helps us cross disciplines. So I've been obsessed with anthropology now for about 10 years. So on one level, my job title says that I'm an IR scholar. But at the other level, I'm also kind of a closet anthropologist and I'm constantly finding ways to kind of bridge this like uber micro dimension with this macro dimension. And I think order gives me the tools to do that. Thank you a lot for that. I was actually going to say what you were saying kind of reminds me of thinking back to like bits and pieces of anthropology I've read. So talk about those that kind of micro politics making me think of the whole Clifford Gertz deep play idea of being really involved in a context to try and understand those micro interactions and then how they build up a kind of cultural framework and then what you think about how that then shapes a kind of violent context then you think about like christopher taylor and alexander laban hinton's work on how those the cultural narratives and frameworks then shape 
or potentially constrain violence and how that violence is carried out. So yeah, no, that was really interesting. Lastly, before we go, then, what we also really wanted to talk to you about was this 25th anniversary special edition that you're going to be releasing. So I was just wondering if you tell the audience a bit more about that special edition of the journal and if there are any particular pieces that you wanted to discuss or that you're excited about. Obviously, I think 25 years is, is quite a major milestone that probably should be marked. So part of what we're trying to do is kind of celebrate what the journal has achieved but also, in a sense, because we are kind of the namesake of the entire field of study to really reflect on the, the wider field of study. So it's not just a celebration of the journal, but it's also a real kind of point at which we can both look back and we can see how the field has developed and we can look at the trends and we can highlight some of the strengths and weaknesses of the field and be quite open and honest about those weaknesses where we need to be um, and the mistakes that have clearly been made in the ways in which we studied civil wars. But we can also look forward and we can um, look at some of the emerging trends and we can look for opportunities and we can talk about some of the contextual changes that are occurring in the world and how that is likely to shape the discipline of civil war studies. But we also use the special issue as an opportunity to reflect on how we as a journal can do better. Uh, on a whole range of different issues, both in terms of creating community, but also building inclusion, bringing in new voices and new perspectives in lots of different ways. And so the 25th anniversary special edition is pretty huge. We've got 29 articles in there. So basically it's a book. The product that we come up with at the end, we think is is actually much better than we hope that it would be in many ways. It's clearly not comprehensive. We've, there's certainly things that we've missed that we would have liked to have had in there, but that's always going to be the case, I guess. And so ultimately, we've divided it into a series of sections. And so we have quite a long editorial introduction reflecting on the, the field and the nature of putting the special issue together, celebrating the journal a little bit. And then we go into a series of reflections um, from all of the past editorial teams, uh, which is quite nice to see how they um, saw the field kind of um, shape and reshape itself under their editorial tenure. We then move into what we call a section of journeys. So we have contributions from Paul Staniland and Megan Stewart, who are obviously both really big names in this field, but started at slightly different times. So we ask them to reflect both on, on how they see the field having developed, but also their position in it. How did they grow with the field? What were the challenges that they faced and how have they been shaped intellectually? And, and what do they see the future as being? which is the kind of thing you don't often get to see. And we're hoping particularly kind of younger scholars will will see that these journeys are certainly not linear and they're pretty winding and often quite difficult, even for those people who are literally at the top of the field. Then we have 11 quite substantive research articles which take different sub-ideas or sub-disciplines and look at how those sub-disciplines evolved, but then use their own research and collection of new data etc to kind of map out particular problems and, and opportunities for study in the future we've then got a, a special section looking at the nature of the international peace architecture and how it evolved over time philosophically and, and practically and, and what limitations that poses with a series of responses to that that debate and then we have a huge review section looking at some of the major books 
that have shaped the field and looking at their legacies and, and problems. And then we end with a quite a substantial conclusion, taking stock of the special issue, but also making plans for how we can shape the field, but also improve the way in which we do things at the journal so that the field is more inclusive in the future. Oh, amazing. Thank you. Yeah, that sounds really great and definitely encourage people to look out for that 25th anniversary special edition and also to think about the Wars Journal when they're thinking about sending in papers. Alex, Maggie, did you have anything that you wanted to add in terms of this special edition or just kind of your experience working for uh, and as part of the Civil Wars team? So in terms of the structure and the broader kind of themes, James has absolutely nailed it, so I'll leave it at that. But from a personal perspective, I've absolutely loved working on this special issue. It's been a really nice experience working with, you know, this bunch of academic superstars to, you know, working on these really exciting kind of big ideas about how the field's evolving. I've absolutely loved working on it. It was something that when we came in to the journal, I mean, we've been involved with the journal for a lot of years. I've myself been in the reviews team since around 2015. 2015. There you go. But we came in as co-editors in 2022. And one of the first things that we wanted to do was, look, we've got this anniversary coming up. This is a really important kind of inflection point for the journal to reflect on how the field has evolved. It's been a really good experience. I've learned a lot from it. Not much to add. It has been lovely to working with reputable scholars. And it is absolutely such a nice communication from the management point of view because you read a lot where the field is going. And then you understand where the journal is and where the journal wants to go. So this special issue, I guess it helped me as assistant in my job to suggest those uh, directions and to contribute with a part of the vision for a journal. So where it has where it has to be after five years. What are we going to talk about after five years? And we already, I think, there are already some identified fields with this special issue coming out that we would like to further promote and to further collect articles and papers. Another aspect that I enjoyed so much working in this special issue, but with the journal in general in these two recent years, is that we have started, based on James and Alex's initiative, to engage PhD students. Because it's very nice to hear their voice. Sometimes a someone who is in the field has another perspective that can help the article in its empirical contribution in knowledge. And we already started, even from my cohort in Leeds, from our PhD colleagues, I've already started to engage some of my fellows and they gave fantastic contribution and reviewing articles. We should also say at this point that we couldn't have pulled off the special issue without Maggie's help. It would have been impossible. So we definitely have big thanks for her. 100%. That makes us reflect also on the podcast. We always want to include like PhD because it's very important to have the voices of established scholars, but also... PhD who are doing research and so little space is given to them except conferences but I think it's also important to to include their work into our discussion and we always try to have PhD with us on the podcast and we were PhD when we started this podcast so that makes sense right? Yeah, I think often people forget that uh, particularly those PhD students in third and fourth year have, have actually got some really fresh 
ideas coming just back from field work really thinking through those ideas and actually that stuff is is often much more in depth than those of us who are later into our careers who just don't have the time to do field work properly anymore and <laughs> so yeah often you guys have got far more interesting and up-to-date information than than we necessarily <laughs> have <laughs> well thank you thank you guys so thank you for giving us so much of your time and yeah, putting on the podcast to talk with us we really appreciate it and i think it's going to be actually really interesting for our audience for students definitely going to recommend it to my students not just in thinking about civil wars but then thinking as we talked about how that should make us think about international relations international politics and these other fields that they're engaging yeah. with more in depth as well thank you for coming on and even even beyond this and even reflecting on our teaching so thank you so much for for agreeing to participating in our podcast thanks for having us on and thank please you. do have a look at the special issue <laughs> thank yeah. you i was adding in any article that we are releasing soon so <laughs> and if you if you want to follow the journal on um, twitter on at journal of cw that's where you can find us and yeah we'll have more information about the special issue as it comes on there so yeah do follow us yeah, we will put all the links on the bio so you can you can have a look at uh, their Twitter, the journal, and your profiles, guys, as well, if you want to follow more on their research. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Well, that was great. We would like to thank everyone who's listening to our podcast. Please continue to stay tuned for the rest of season two, which will be coming over the next few weeks. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast on Acast, Spotify, Apple Podcasts and all other major podcast apps and platforms to get future episodes directly into your feed. And if you did enjoy this episode, then please remember to leave us a rating and review. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening. Join us next time on Insecure Security Podcast. But until then, stay safe, stay secure. Bye for now. It was Harry and Marie. Insecure. A security podcast.